Good morning, everybody. We're going to be in Psalm 32. If you want to turn there, it's going to take us a little bit to get there. Um, Psalm 32 today. In 1970, um, there was a woman by the name of Catherine Power. Catherine was a student at a, a local Boston university. She was part of a pretty radical student organization. This student organization wanted to give money to the Black Panther Party. Uh, but the only problem was they didn't have any money to give. And so Catherine Power came up with a plan as the leader of this organization. She came up with a plan that they were going to go and rob a bank and then take the money they got from robbing the bank and give it to the Black Panthers. So Catherine's role in the whole thing was to be the getaway car driver. So she put it all together. The night of the robbery comes. She drives her people there. And the robbery quickly goes south. They trip an alarm. The police, office, police officers show up to the scene. One of Catherine's accomplices start, starts shooting at a police officer and hits him, and the officer dies. And on that night, Catherine Power went on a 23-year run from the law. She was listed as on the FBI's most wanted list, longest time, longest time that a woman's been on that list, 23 years. In the late 70s, she moved to Oregon, and she assumed a new name, Alice Metzinger. And it, by all appearances, it appeared that she'd kind of gotten away with it. She built a new life under this new name. She opened a restaurant. She had children, got married, um, volunteered in the community. A lot of people in the community really liked her. Seemed like she'd kind of gotten away from it, and the past was in the past. Except by the age of 44, Catherine Power, now Alice Metzinger, was crippled with guilt, totally ashamed by her past, worried that it would find her out, and hopelessly depressed. And so she did the only thing she knew to do, which is in September of 1993, she turned herself into the Boston Police Department, confessed everything, went to trial, and eventually served a prison sentence for a crime that she had committed 23 years ago. A reporter asked Catherine, why was it so important for you to tell the truth, for you to turn yourself in? And Catherine Power said this, she said, I am now learning to live with openness and truth rather than shame and hiddenness. I'm living in openness and truth, not shame and hiddenness anymore. See, Catherine Power had learned a lesson that many of us have already learned, and if we haven't learned it yet, High school students, college students, if you haven't learned this yet, you will learn it. And that is this. Shame and guilt are feelings from which you cannot run and you cannot hide. You can try. We've been trying ever since Adam and Eve. Their reaction to their sin is to hide behind a bush. Catherine Powers is to move across the country and change her name. But you can't outrun guilt and shame. It's feelings from which you cannot run and cannot hide. I've learned the power of guilt and shame in my own life. And I have also learned of the hopelessness of hiding. There's a certain hopelessness that comes along with hiding the truth. To make a really long story short, just bear with me for a few moments here as I set this up. But to make a really long story short, I was raised in a Christian home. At the age of nine, I accepted Christ. We looked like a, a young, idealistic family. Me and my sisters, always in church, knew the Bible answers, dressed nice. My dad was the pastor of the small little country church that we went to. So on the outside, I mean, we looked like an idealistic family, young minister and his young family. But we held a secret that caused shame and guilt. My dad was an alcoholic. There's a lot to that, but eventually I'll just kind of 
speed through it. Eventually, my dad leaves my family. He leaves the ministry, causes a lot of pain and, and uh, difficult times throughout my junior high and senior high years. But God was still active. He was still good. He was still in my life. At 16, I felt called to ministry. I went to First Baptist Church of Kerrville, and the church rallied around me, and it was exciting. And so at 16, I go, I'm going to do, go do youth ministry. And so at 18, I graduate high school, and I go to a small Baptist college to pursue that call. While at this school, I have my first encounter with alcohol. Now, you'd think this would be a pretty easy decision. As the son of an alcoholic who watched his dad destroy everything, that he could touch, our family, everything else, you'd think this would be an easy pass for me. Like, no thanks, I don't want to do that. Except I remember distinctly, I can still remember what I was wearing, I still remember the location, I remember distinctly thinking this thought, I will beat what beat my dad. Now, doesn't that sound like famous last words, right? Of course it does. I'll beat what beat my dad. That night I picked up a bottle, and I began to drink, and for years I could not put it down. And I became an alcoholic myself. Now, I finished college, and the problem with addiction is you don't know when you've crossed the starting line. It's invisible, but once you've crossed it, it's too late. You can't give it up. You can't simply choose to stop. It's too difficult. I graduate college. I immediately get a job as a full-time youth minister. I was 22 years old. I, I had no business doing this. I wasn't spiritually fit. But I take this job, and everything's going really well, except behind closed doors, the addiction's continuing to grow. Another year goes by or so. I, I meet my wife. We get married. There's parts of my life that I downplay or I hide, or she can't fully see what's going on. And everything's fine for a little while, but the addiction continues to grow. Another year passes, all of a sudden my wife and I see the severity of the problem. We realize this is a big deal, but we don't know how to solve it. And so we try everything as quietly as possible, just on our own, to solve the problem. But we can't solve it. Another year goes by. I have our first, we have our first child. Her name is Emma. We have Emma. And all of a sudden, doesn't this sound familiar? We look like the young idealistic family. Baptist minister, young family, always at church, except the addiction continued to grow. Ministry was going great. Things were blowing up. Students were coming to know the Lord, but the addiction continued to grow. And we went on for the, like this for years and years, silently suffering. And I want to be clear, everybody in the house suffered. I suffered because I was demoralized. I kept saying, I'm not going to do this again this week, only to do it again this week, right? Maybe you know the feeling Make a firm resolution to not go back to the sin that you always go back to and how demoralizing that is. I suffered under that. My wife suffered because she found herself in two roles that she didn't sign up for. The first role was policing me, trying to keep me out of trouble. She didn't sign up for that. And the second role was secret keeper, protect the secret. My children... Praise God they were so young that they don't remember any of this, but they suffered because I wasn't a good dad during those years because I was either miserable that I had drank or I was miserable that I hadn't drank. I was just miserable. See, my wife and I found ourselves in what we thought was an impossible situation. It wasn't an impossible situation. It was actually way easier than what we were making it, but we thought at the time it was an impossible situation. Being an alcoholic is bad enough. But we seem to think that being an alcoholic Baptist minister is even worse. Because if I tell the truth, this is what we had thought, if I tell the truth, I'll lose my job. And then what do we do? 
And so this went on for years and years, and we suffered and suffered. And in the middle of all of that, the thing that I felt more than anything else, I was drowning in guilt. Because I knew the public persona that I had, and I knew the private life that I had, and these did not match up. I was drowning in guilt, hiding like crazy, trying to keep this secret. God was good in the sense that he would not allow this to go on for forever. He eventually orchestrated the events by which everything kind of came to light. And I was faced with a choice, the same choice that Catherine Power made, the same choice that Adam and Eve made as God calls out to them in the garden, where are you? I came to a choice. I can either tell the truth and bring it all out into the open, or I can keep hiding. And God in his grace and God in his power set me free from addiction. He, he ultimately gave me the, the strength to walk out of it, and as I continue to walk with him and serve him, he's restored a lot of the things that I lost, but it was a tough several years. Maybe you're like me, and maybe you're like Catherine Power. I'm not saying you're an addict to anything. I couldn't possibly know that. But maybe you were like both of us in the sense that you are drowning right now in guilt. Maybe you're guilty for an action that you did years upon years upon years ago that you've been trying to hide from, but you can't outrun it. Maybe you're drowning in guilt because of some actions that are currently in your life. There's something that you're currently doing. There's a secret side that not very many people, if any at all, know about. Maybe you're drowning under guilt and shame because of your thought life, or maybe there's some mental health stuff, and you want so desperately to come out of hiding and to tell this is what's honestly going on. I'm not going to put up any front anymore. I'm just going to tell you what's honestly going on, but you're terrified to do that because you don't know who or what you will lose if you come out of hiding? How do we get freedom from guilt and shame? How do we find the way, the strength, the ability to step out from the shadows and stand in the light of forgiveness, of redemption, of grace, and breathe the air of forgiveness? How do we do that? The Bible has a lot of stories about people who committed some unbelievable sins, and because of that, were racked with unbelievable amounts of guilt. David is one of those stories, King David of the Old Testament. You might know the high points of, or I should say the low points of his life, but let me just recap. David was a man after God's own heart, and yet the man after God's own heart had committed some pretty serious sins. He had committed the sin of adultery. He had essentially orchestrated the murder of an innocent man. For nine months, David, or maybe even more, David sits silent. He hides. He doesn't want to talk about it or acknowledge it, but eventually he confesses. And we're going to read his confession today, and you're going to notice in his confessions there's three different words that David uses for his sin. It shows us that David made a threefold confession. First of all, he said, this is who the sin was against. Second, this is what the sin was. And third, this is what this sin says about me. He made a heartfelt confession to God, and in doing so, he found freedom. I want to look at it today because hopes, in hopes that some of you who might be racked with guilt yourself might find freedom The first thing we'll see when we look at the passage is this. We can find freedom from guilt when we tell it to God exactly like it is. Tell it to God like it is. Look at Psalm 32, verse 1. Here's David's confession. He says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven is forgiven. Transgression's an old-timey, old-sounding, Old Testament word. We know it means sin. 
But we don't really use that in our you know, daily talk. When we talk about our sin, we just call it sin. So what was the significance of saying, of starting here, of blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven? Why transgression? What does transgression mean? It's a Hebrew word that could literally be translated revolt, rebellion, treason, mutiny. You would be a traitor if you committed a transgression. What he's literally saying is, blessed is the one whose rebellion is forgiven. When David approaches God, nine months, he's been silent. I'm not going to talk about this. I don't want to talk about it. But overcome with guilt, overcome with shame, he finally confesses to the Lord, and he chokes out the words, and he starts here, first and foremost, God, let me tell you exactly like it is. First and foremost, I have rebelled against your rule and reign in my life. Think about this. This is a king of Israel saying, I've rebelled against your throne, against your rule and reign. You know how scary that would be for a king to make that statement? Because David, as the king, knows this. If anyone walks into his throne room and says, David, I need to tell you something, I've rebelled. I've, had a, I've been leading a secret rebellion against your throne, against your rule, against your reign. David would have every right to say, kill that man. You've rebelled against me and against my rule and reign. And yet David says, let me start here. I just have to call it what it is. I've rebelled. He doesn't start with what I did. He doesn't start with the action itself. He doesn't even start with, let me tell you about Uriah and Bathsheba, the man and the woman that my sin affected. Doesn't start there. Doesn't start with chapter verse of what rule and what law he broke. No, 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 no. Before he goes anywhere, he says, first and foremost, I need to tell you this. I've, I've rebelled. I've rebelled against you. You want to know why I believe so many of us are stuck in guilt and shame? It's because our confessions are weak. I think our confessions are weak. If you've been around church, you know this, that confession is a, a normal, vital, supposed to be daily part of the Christian walk. You're supposed to confess your sins to the Lord. I think most of us just practice a really weak confession. Because I think oftentimes what we do is, first of all, most of us have become so accustomed and so comfortable with our sin that we don't even confess it anymore. We just live with it. We accept it for what it is. But maybe, you know, maybe we find ourselves in some difficult circumstance, a jam of some type, and all of a sudden we need God's help, and so all of a sudden we pray to God, like, okay, I'm in this, you know, big problem situation, and we start praying, this is my need, this is what I need you to do for me, God, and in the middle of that prayer, all of a sudden we're struck with, and we're reminded, hey, before I ask God for anything, maybe I should confess my sins, and so we half-heartedly mumble a confession, and what that typically looks like is this. Oh, yeah, by the way, God, if you could forgive me for what I watched Friday night. Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot. God, if you could forgive me for the fact that I've been lying like crazy. If you could forgive me for the fact that I've been super selfish with my kids and my wife and I'm not being a very good dad. And we just fill in the blank with whatever your flavor of sin is. And we just report the action. Here's what I did. Please forgive me. That is a weak confession. You understand that confession is far more than reporting the action, don't you? I mean, let's just start here. God already knows you did it. You're not telling him anything he didn't watch in real time. 
Confession is so much more. It is about reporting the action, but it's about seeing beneath the action and seeing what it really was. David looks at what he did, the adultery, the murder, and he says, first and foremost, before I even get to Uriah and Bathsheba, before I even talk about what I did, let me say this. I am a rebel. I've rebelled against you, against your rule and your reign in my life. The Bible is clear that every single one of us, every single one of us, in this room, all of us watching online or on TV, every single one of us individually and collectively have rebelled against God. That every time you return back to your sin and I return back to mine, what we are essentially saying is, God, I want to sit on your throne. I'll do it. David says, I know this is a scary place for me to be, but I have rebelled. But he goes further than that. His confession goes deeper. Look at the conclusion of verse one. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression, that is rebellion, is forgiven. Then he says this, whose sin is covered. He says, it was, yes, God, I'll acknowledge, it was rebellion. It was, I've rebelled. But it's more than just a rebellion. It's also sin. Let me just call it what it is. It's sin. It's sin. What is the word here, Sin. It's an Old Testament word. It has an equivalent in the New Testament. It's an archery term. The idea is missing the mark. You might have heard this before in church, that when we sin, we miss the mark. David, sitting silent for nine plus months, finally he chokes out the words to God, probably tears streaming down his face, his heart breaking inside. I've rebelled. I've rebelled against you, but more than that, I have Totally, let me just tell it like it is. I have totally missed the mark. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that before where you go, God, how did I get here? This is where David is. How did I get here? Keep in mind, David is the man who writes the 23rd Psalm. David's the man who says, the Lord is my shepherd, and he believed it. David is the man who's the runt of his family, the least of all the brothers, and yet God, just out of sheer sovereignty and grace, God chose David to be king, anointed him with oil to be king. David hadn't done anything to earn that. God just picked him. It's a blessing. David has to run from King Saul. King Saul wants to kill him. He's on the run for years. Who's the one that sustained him every step of the journey? Who's the one that was always faithful to him? It was God. God later on says about David, he's a man after my own heart. That's how close he is to me. This man who wrote the 23rd Psalm, blessed by God, God had been faithful to him. God had called him a man after his own heart. Is the same guy that in the middle of his life said, I have totally, completely missed the mark. How did I get here, my sin was so deceptive that I, realized, I never even realized what I was doing. How did I get here? I've missed it. I think oftentimes when we hear sin described in that way in church, and it's true that it is an archery term, and it does talk about missing the mark. I think sometimes, though, that's deceptive to us. Because I think sometimes we hear, yes, sin is missing the mark, and you're okay with that, and I'm okay with that. We'll, we'll acknowledge we've missed the mark. But many of us think, I might have missed the bullseye, but I got pretty close. Right? I might have missed the bullseye, but I got pretty close. I have friends that are really into archery. I'm not. 
um, but they are. And so occasionally they'll convince me. They'll say, hey, come out with us, and they'll you know, set up targets, or they'll already have them set up at differing lengths. And, of course, they're like you know, super. They have all the equipment. They're going to show me what, I, what to do, and I don't care. So I'm like, you can teach me all you want. I'm going to forget it in five seconds, you know. And so they shoot, and of course they're good, and so they'll hit maybe an inch to the right or an inch to the left, and they'll go, oh, I gotta correct this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, because they're close. I'm just happy if I hit the target. You know what I'm saying? They're like, oh man, I missed an inch outside, and I'm like, I hit the target, man. And I think that's how we often feel. Well, yeah, I missed the mark, but I was close. I'm not that bad. When the Bible talks about you missing the mark, when David talks about him missing the mark, we're not talking about you got close. We're talking about you were so deceived that you turned away from the target you were supposed to be aiming at and you aimed at something else altogether. You're miles away. Listen to how Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Listen to this. This is so difficult for us to hear, but hear it. He says this, none is righteous. Not even one. None. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Do you see that word? We've turned aside and pursued our own target. For years I was so deceived. I thought, well, I'm doing the right thing. I preach and I do this and I do that and I work with students. What I didn't know is my sin had so deceived me that slowly but surely I had drifted off course and I was aiming at something altogether. And finally one day I woke up and said, I have missed the mark. David says, this is me. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat's an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We didn't get close. We totally missed the mark. You want to be free from guilt... You choke out the confession. You say, Lord, I've rebelled against you, but second, I have totally and completely missed the mark. In fact, ready? I missed the mark that you set for me, God. I missed the mark that my family set for me. And I missed the mark that even I set for myself. That's how totally missed the mark I've done, right? So David says this. He goes, let me just tell you like it is, but he has another level of confession here, and this is the deepest level of confession Without it, I don't think we'll ever be free from guilt and shame. Look at what he says in verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Iniquity, his third word for sin. He says, first, my transgression, it was rebellion. Second, the sin was missing the mark. But third, there's an iniquity that needs to be forgiven. What is iniquity? Another old-sounding, old-timey, Old Testament word. We know it means something bad, but we don't typically know what it means. What is iniquity? It's a Hebrew word that could literally be translated, something inside of me is still twisted. That's iniquity. Something is twisted. In my heart, God, something has been twisted, and I have tried to untwist it, but I can't do it. 
I need help. In my mind, the way I think, God, something's been bent, and I have tried to unbend it and straighten it out, but I cannot do it on my own. I need help. There's something chronically, just absolutely chronically broken inside of me. In my spirit, there's been something that has been warped. It's been twisted around, and I've tried to set it straight, but I cannot do it. There is something chronically wrong and broken inside of me, and I desperately, desperately, desperately need help. That's iniquity. See, David says there's kind of two levels to a confession. And we usually stop at the first. There's the level of doing. David would say at the level of doing, I rebelled and I missed the mark. But then there's a second, deeper level of confession. That's the level of being. At the level of doing, I've rebelled and I've missed the mark. But at the level of being, what these actions reveal, what I did, what they reveal about me is that something still inside of me is broken and I need help. That's iniquity. David would say to the Lord, Lord, I've done all of this, but what it reveals about me. This is why David writes in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. There's something broken and messed up. I cannot fix my heart. I need you to fix my heart. David would say, do you want to be free from guilt? Seriously. Do you want to step out of hiding once and for all? Do you want to stop lying? Stop covering up. Tell it to God like it is. You're no different than any of the rest of us. You've rebelled. You've missed the mark. And there's some twistedness inside of you that needs healing. David would say, you tell it to God like it is. Choke the words out if you have to choke them out, but get them out. Because then he would tell us this. If you don't deal with guilt, your guilt will deal with you. Catherine Power would tell you that. Don't deal with guilt. Guilt will deal with you. You can't outrun it. Adam and Eve will tell you that. I can tell you that. David will tell you that. Look at the next verse. For when I kept silent, that's nine plus months, I kept silent. My bones wasted away. In other words, I had physical ailments. I was so guilty. I felt like my bones were wasting away. I had physical ailments. Doctors and psychologists and counselors will tell you this is true. You can be so racked with guilt that there's physical manifestations. You're sickly because of your guilt. He said, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. In other words, my conscience was groaning all day long. I woke up in the morning. Some of you know how terrible this feeling is. You wake up in the morning and you have about one second of peace while you're kind of coming to And then all of a sudden, your conscience starts groaning. You remember. Or throughout the day, your conscience groans. It won't let you off the hook. Or at night, when you turn off the lights and you're laying in bed and there's no noise and there's no more distractions, it's just you before the Lord. You want to go to sleep, but you can't because your conscience is groaning. Or at night, your dreams turn to nightmares because your conscience is groaning. David says, if you don't deal with the guilt, the guilt will deal with you. He says in verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. In other words, you weren't going to let me off the hook, God. You're too good. You're too good to let me off the hook. You're not going to sweep this under the rug. You want to deal with it. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. In other words, I lost all motivation for life. I was listless, passionless. 
I just kind of went through the motions. Some of us are dealing with that. Have you ever stopped to consider that perhaps you're dealing with all these feelings of listlessness and passionlessness, and it's because you're racked with guilt, because there's something in your life that you're not willing to confront and talk about? David says, you want to be free? See, David was in a place, he was in a bad place. He'd kept silent all these months, had all these ailments, but he was scared, and, and there's a reason why he was scared. See, David had committed the highest order of sin. This was the highest order of sin you could commit in the Old Testament law. There was no animal sacrifice that could atone for it. There was no human priest that could absolve him of his guilt. The temple purification ceremonies, there wasn't. This was too big of a sin. David knew this. He knew there is no sacrifice. There is no purification ceremony. There is no priest who can let me off of this. So for months he stayed silent, and finally he just couldn't take it anymore. And he goes, I'll do the only thing I can do, which is to fall on the grace and the mercy of God. Look at what he says after staying silent. He says in verse 5, I acknowledge, look at this, I acknowledge my sin. I told you what I did. I'd left no stone unturned. I told you it was missing the mark after all you've done for me. I acknowledge my sin to you. I didn't cover up, listen to this, I didn't cover up my iniquity, my twisted up, my brokenness. In fact, I called it what it is. Father, this is iniquity. I'm twisted. I'm broken. I need help. I said, and listen to, I think, the terror in his words here. I said, I will confess my transgression. That would be my rebellion to you. I will confess my rebellion and I know the consequences that come from rebelling from a king. I'll confess my rebellion, my transgressions to the Lord. And then these beautiful words that follow, ready? And you forgave, and forgave what? The iniquity, the depths. Not just the doing, but the being. You forgave me right where I needed forgiveness in the iniquity. You see, David was in a bad spot. Nothing would work for him. But praise God that you and I have a different perspective than David. David looked to an animal sacrifice system that wasn't sufficient for his sins. David looked to a human priesthood that wasn't sufficient for his sins. David looked to a temple that wasn't sufficient for his sins. But you and I, thousands of years later, we don't look to animal sacrifices. We don't look to a human priesthood. We don't look to a temple. You know what we look to? We look to a cross. We look to an empty tomb. And we look to a risen Savior. See, God would say this to us this morning. You want to be free from guilt and shame? then tell it to me exactly as it is and run to your advocate as quickly as you can. Get to your advocate. This is what John would say, 1 John chapter 2. Here's what he says. If anyone does sin, and we would all go, amen. This is all of us. Every person in the room is an all-skate verse. It's for every single one of us. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate beside the Father, with the Father. His name is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have an advocate, a counselor, a defender. Notice how John doesn't qualify this at all. He doesn't say, if you sinned in this way, you have an advocate. But if you sin in this way, sorry, you're out of luck. 
Or if you sinned within the past 365 days, you can admit that to God. But if your sin goes beyond the 365-day limit, sorry, you're going to have to live with that. John would say, if you sinned 20 seconds ago or 20 years ago and you've never dealt with it, you have an advocate right now. If you sin by word or by deed, you have an advocate. If you sinned in your mind or in action, you have an advocate. At this very moment, if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, every single person in this room who that is true for, right this very second, you have an advocate standing in your defense beside God the Father. God would say, you want to be free from guilt? Go to your advocate your counselor, your defender, and tell them just like it is. What do you suppose happens when I confess my sins to Jesus? If he is my advocate, what do you suppose happens when I confess my sins? I mean, I, I have been set free from the addiction. I, that's not in my life. I don't think about it anymore. I keep walking with the Lord, and the Lord keeps me free, and that's great. But I still have sin issues. I still have to confess so what, what happens when I confess to my advocate? Jesus, let me tell it like it is, tell you exactly what's going on. What conversation between Jesus and the Father happens about me? Do you suppose that Jesus, when I confess my sins to him, do you suppose that he tries to balance the books with my goodness? Let me give you an example. Say I say, hey, Jesus, you know what I did, what I said, and what I thought. I did, said, thought. And I tell him exactly what it is. Do you think that Jesus, as my advocate, then approaches the Father and says, now, Father, let's talk about Tim. we got another issue with Tim, right? Seems like every day we got an issue with Tim, right? Okay, we got an issue with Tim. Father, I know what he did. I know what he did. But, Father, just keep in mind, he preaches every week for college students. He's a pretty good guy. I mean, that ought to count for something, right? I preach for college students every week. Father, I know what he said. I heard what he said. But Father, let's just be honest. I mean, every week he counsels college students. I mean, that's a pretty good guy, right? Let's balance the books a little bit. Work with him. He's trying. Father, I know what he thought, but just this Sunday, Father, he spoke in front of the entire church and he preached about guilt. That ought to count for something. You think Jesus balances the books based on my goodness when he advocates and defends that's how human courts work. If you leave this room and you go commit a crime today and you get caught, if it's a significant enough crime, you're going to go to a trial and your lawyer, your advocate, your counselor is going to do that. They're going to try to balance the books. Your Honor, I know what they did. It's indefensible. But keep in mind, this is the first time they've been in trouble. Your Honor, I know exactly what they did. But keep in mind, they volunteer in the community See, in human courts, it works that we balance the books. And the unbelieving world, those that don't believe in Christ, really, really, really hope that that's the case in heaven, that, that somehow my goodness is going to get me in. But the Bible is unbelievably clear. You cannot pay for your sins. No amount of good deeds you do will atone for what you've already done. It's too late. You're not getting in by your goodness. No, when I approach Jesus and I say, Jesus, I did, I said, I thought. I think this conversation goes on between Jesus and the Father. Father, I saw exactly what Tim did, what he said, and what he thought, and I will call it exactly what it is. It was rebellion, it was missing the mark, and it was iniquity. It was a twistedness. I've been working on him for a long time. 
And Father, even in Tim's best moments, even when he is preaching and even when he is teaching and even when he is counseling, even in those good moments, Father, it's still so mixed with flesh that it's like filthy rags in my sight. However, Father, it was for him that I left heaven. It was for him that I lived a perfect life, upholding your law perfectly. It was for him that I laid down my life on the cross, and it was for him that you rose me from the grave. Father, he stands, he is who he is, but I will tell you this, Father, he is washed in my blood, he is covered in my righteousness, and he is one of mine. It is not about what Tim does. It is about what I have done on Tim's behalf through the cross and resurrection. He's mine. That's why you need an advocate. You go to Jesus and you say, let me just tell you what it is. And he'll remind you of the gospel, that you don't have to perform and atone anymore. He sets you free from that. In fact, he would say this to you in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, are we talking about just a general reporting? No, we've defined it. Tell it what it is. Turn every stone over. Talk about it. What was it? Say what it was. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. It's an astonishing claim that if we will simply confess, Jesus is faithful and just. And in that moment, we're released from the guilt, from the shame. James goes further James chapter 5, verse 16, James says, therefore confess. Are we talking about just a general reporting of your sins? No, we're talking about the depths. Do you do this with everyone? No, you don't do it with everyone, with the people you can trust. We also, by the way, when we confess our sins to one another, we don't generalize. Can I tell you how many times I hear somebody say, hey, I need help, I need prayer, I'm dealing with anxiety. Let me tell you, anxiety is a real thing. Some of you are struggling with it. You do need help, you do need prayer, you do need to talk to somebody. But I can tell you how many times I've talked with a person who says I'm dealing with anxiety, but really the truth is I'm stuck in anxiety because I'm addicted to pornography. See, anxiety becomes a safe thing to say in that moment. But we don't do that. No, we just call it what it is. We lay it out there. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you might be healed because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Do you want to know why we're stuck in guilt and stuck in shame? It's because for many of us, we just haven't gone to the Lord and confessed. And do you want to know why some of us are stuck in sin? It's because we're not listening to God's word when he says, if you want healing, open up your mouth and tell some people. Have them pray with you and walk with you. And you'll find freedom. All those years ago, I stood there in this moment of decision. Do I tell the truth or do I just run off and hide some more? And I made the decision, and this is not about how courageous I am. There's a lot of people in my life that helped me. I couldn't have done it on my own. I made the decision to stand up in front of the entire church and in front of God and say exactly who I was. It was terrifying. It's terrifying even now to say I'm an alcoholic. I feel exposed before you all. But when I said those words, I found out that God's word is true that there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Guilt and shame were thrown out the window. And on that day, in that time, God began on me a journey that he would ultimately set me free from the power of alcoholism in my life. And it is a power that you can have too. Are you want, willing, are you ready to be free of this once and for all? I wanna call you to three responses. I'm gonna pray in one second. 
We're going to stand and sing, and as you stand and sing, I'm going to call you to three responses. The first is this. If you need to just walk the aisle and kneel at the stairs and pray and confess, there's something about kneeling before the Lord. If you need to do that, thousands of people have done it before you, then come, kneel, pray, confess. Tell God exactly what it is. There will be people standing across, staff members, volunteers standing across the front. We would love to hear you. We're not perfect and we won't judge you. We've been saved by grace just as much as you have. If you need to accept Christ because you've been relying on your own goodness, come talk to one of us. If you need to say something, we need to pray for you. Come find one of us. We'll pray for you. Finally, for those of you in this room that believe that you're beyond that because you've walked a lot of aisles and you've prayed a lot of prayers and you still find yourself stuck in sin, on the screen right now is my email address. I would tell you this, if you're stuck in a sin that you just can't get free of, or if you just need help, you're stuck in maybe some mental health stuff or something, email me. Your response is to email me today. Don't even leave this room before you email me. I want to introduce you to a program that we're going to get going in eight weeks called Regeneration. It is the program that saved my life and set me free. It is based on God's word. It is a group of people who say we will honestly journey with one another, and it's not just for addicts. It's for anybody who is stuck. If you're stuck, Email me. I'll follow up with you. I want to introduce you to a Savior who's here to set you totally and 100% free. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for today, the truth of your word. We thank you for this story of David. It's a real story. It's a raw story. It's a difficult story, but it is a story we need to hear because it's a story of so many of us. Father, you came to set us free. You came to set us free. Your son in his first sermon says, the the hand of the Lord is upon me. I've come to set them free, to give sight to the blind, to, to break the shackles of slavery. You came to set us free. Forgive us for when we settle for anything less than your freedom. Forgive us when we don't trust your word. Forgive us when you've commanded for us to confess and we've grown comfortable with sin. We don't confess. Forgive us for when you told us to confess to one another and we're terrified of transparency. Forgive us for the games that we play where we appear one way, but really on the inside, we're falling apart. You came to set us free. Forgive us for settling for anything less. Father, I pray for those in this room that if they need to email me, they'll email me. If they need to walk this aisle and kneel at these steps, they do that. If they need to pray with a staff member or volunteer, they do that. As you've prompted them to respond, I pray they would be faithful and courageous enough to respond as you've prompted. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.